everybody. Welcome to Doc Drew Podcast. We appreciate everyone being here and supporting the show. And uh, as I've always say, uh, support the people that support us. Don't forget uh, After Dark's lying around there and also the streaming shows at DocDrew.tv. And do support the people that support us. We can keep doing this little thing. Today, we are welcoming back an old friend. Uh, she has a new book. It's not even so new anymore. It took me a damn long time to get her in here. My fault. Mea culpa. It is Teresa Strasser. It is a wonderful book, according to Cal Ripken, which I also saw the video with you dancing around the room and your kids going, geez, what, you were so weird. What is wrong with you? <laughs> <laughs> Teresa Strasser, welcome. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I think my happy dance was longer than Cal Ripken Jr.'s consecutive game streak. Isn't that funny? I could not believe that he said so many wonderful things about my book. I mean... Drew, I should just tell you this story. I thought to myself, whose name do I want on the cover of a book about baseball? It's also about grief, but a memoir about baseball and grief, Little League. And then I thought Cal Ripken Jr. is probably the most iconic living baseball player. On top of that, he has a youth baseball league. So I did. Yep. That That makes sense. Right. So he was the guy. But then I, I I thought I've got to use my connections as a journalist, right? I'm a trained sure. journalist. Sure. So this is what I'm going to do. I Googled how to reach Cal Ripken Jr. Yeah. It's weird. It, I got to tell you something. It is weird how uh, much information can be uh, acquired that way. I literally, a friend of mine was asking me to get to um, Mark. Um, McGuire. Mark Cuban. Mark oh, and uh, he just goes, I bet you can figure it out. We was when he was talking a lot about healthcare and stuff. And I thought it was kind of interesting what he was talking about. And he goes, you can get to him. I go, what do you mean I get to it? It's Mark Cuban. How am I going to get to Mark Cuban? He goes, you figure it out. So I Googled <laughs> reach Mark Cuban or email Mark Cuban. It comes right up. Comes I mean, Boom. Within 10 minutes, I was having email exchange with Mark Cuban. Isn't that crazy? That is is crazy okay so i was first able to get to his pr person who somehow determined from my letter that i was not crazy and then we exchanged a couple more letters but i will say i spent a couple days researching cal ripkin jr and i found out that he'd written almost 30 books i knew that you know he comes from a baseball family so i thought he would cal ripkin gosh it was just the anniversary of 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 the day he beat Lou Gehrig's record so he must be in his 60s jeez I can't believe it that's so crazy to me I would have put him in like in his 40s or something let me I'm gonna look it up let's see how, how okay oh, let's look it up we're gonna look this up too <laughs> here we are uh so keep going so you got through to him yeah I got through to him and I I mean I spent a lot this was not just any letter I mean, Dr. Drew, I think you know me well enough to know that I perseverate. I wrote and rewrote and rewrote. OCD, you? I have no idea what you're talking about. (laughs) Perfectionist? Uh, What? 63. 63. 63? Okay, yeah. Yeah. So I read everything about him, and I remember reading that at one point his dad was coaching him, and the feeling he had when he hit a home run and his dad would be at third base and he'd round the bases and there his dad would be at third. And he said that those were some of the happiest memories of his time as a player because he knew how proud his dad was of him. And my story is a story about my dad and I and how we turned Little League into our own grief group. But it's also generational because my brother played, my sons play, and I just thought he would respond to it so I really put so much thought and effort into this letter, although I employed the same technique in junior high and Matthew Broderick is still not my boyfriend. Uh, <laughs> so it doesn't always work. Don't give up, though. Come on now. <laughs> and, and so the, your book struck me uh, and you wrote some very kind things in my book and. Uh, but it's the topic and everything about it just spoke deeply to me because did I tell you this? I don't think I've talked to you since you wrote the book when you were thinking of writing it, but it's a little different topic, but, but it, it's little league. And that is, uh, I didn't coach my kids in little league, but I went to all the practices and I saw the, you know, always saw the games and things. And some of my kids 
sort of prime little league days? I, like, what what do you consider the ages of the sort of peak little league sort of experience? Right. I'll tell you exactly my thoughts. So there's the minors and the majors in little league, and to me. Peak Little League, when the kids are still sort of innocent, is the minors. That's nine and ten. So, so gonna, fourth I, and fifth. I was going to say eight to ten. That's exactly what I was going to say. And at that period of time, we invaded Iraq. And there was these cra- and we had just had 9-11. And there were all these crazy things happening in the world. And I would go sit there in the Little League bleachers and just go, thank God I could just be here. And the whole world has fallen apart and I'm just here and everything is okay. As long as I'm here supporting them, focusing on this, watching them play. It was transcendent. That's about the best way I can describe it. And so when you wrote this book, I went, Oh, I, I get it. I can relate so strongly. And it, and I'm going to even go one step further and say, it's a model for dealing with heavy shit. So now, you without giving away too much, without making it such that we don't want people to read the book, we need them to read it, talk to us about what happened. I have so many thoughts about what you just said. Yeah. Um, during that time, even if you weren't playing Little League and you weren't coaching your kids, no matter where you are on the political spectrum, you remember where you were when President Bush threw out the pitch before game three of the World Series at Yankee Stadium. You remember where you were because everybody was grieving. There was chaos and it was frightening. And something about that moment brought everyone together because baseball, right? So when you were sitting in the dugout coaching your kids. I was was not coaching. Not coaching. But I would just, and I I would just, I was in, literally in the bleachers most of the time. But that's where I needed to be. That was it. (laughs) So, okay. So same for my dad and I, my husband was coaching. I think a few things. I think when you're grieving or when there's chaos, you need normalcy. You need structure. You need routine. Baseball has not changed. I think the first baseball little league game was played like in, I might be wrong, 1839. The rules are basically the same. My dad and I, I, I'll never forget my dad saying, and you know, my dad was a mechanic. He didn't exactly love talking about his feelings. He's not that kind of griever. Uh, but I remember him saying, it's out of order, T. A father shouldn't outlive his son. It's out of order. In baseball, there's one way to run the bases. The rules are the same. Literally, fair is fair and foul is foul. And you know what to expect. Here are the dimensions. They're in chalk everything's going to be okay. Right? Like this, this is how it's been. This is how it's going to be. This is how it was when my brother played. This is how it was when, you know, when your grandpa played. And it- okay. Has a, has a deeper, I know exactly what you're talking about and I completely agree with it, but I would also argue that you, you, you sort of, you start there and the everything. Okay. Kind of builds off that, right? It's just, you're just be, it's being there. It's some sort of weird present moment. It's the weirdest thing. I it's isn't, isn't it? I experienced that exactly because yeah. we got, my dad and I were way too into baseball. I'm not going to lie. Like I know that you're the father of a competitive figure skater and you probably remember parents that were way too into it. And it was embarrassing and cringe inducing and you felt sorry for them well, my dad and I were not those people because we were way worse than those people. Like we were so into it. And I think that's part of what, what made it healing, right? Whether it's what, whatever it is, like we were in it. As long as we're sharing our, our, uh, our, our personal experience with this, I was actually not a huge baseball fan until my kids got into Little League. And, and it always seemed to me like three minutes of action packed into two hours. <laughs> and so and I was like, huh, it's not my thing so much, but, but through, so the reason I'm pushing back and saying it the way I am is because anybody can access what you're talking about. You don't have to be into baseball to have this experience. It, it's, it, it's so odd. And you're really putting your finger on something I think rather profound. So keep going. Your dad were into it. You guys were bad fans or over, over fandoms or whatever you were. We were perhaps overzealous, but I think that's 
what made it healing. As you said, there's a present moment focus. And when you're grieving or going through a hard time, what's better than that? Like I can remember time standing still almost like when my son Nate hit a ball and it flew through, it's flying through the air and I'm just praying for that ball to find a gap. Like, please let it fall between center and right field. Please let him get a hit and time stands still because all I'm thinking about is that ball. I'm not thinking about my dead brother or, you know, all the the things that I'm going to miss out on with him or all the awful things that happened when he was sick and dying. I'm just thinking about that ball. I also, I also, I wasn't aware of this when it was happening and I wasn't even aware of this when I was writing the book. But when the book was coming out, I was really anxious about stuff like this, you know, talking about the book promoting the book. I'm a very introverted person and I have a lot of stage fright. So I went to her to talk about how nervous I was. And she said, well, don't, it's not about you. Just think about your people. And I said, well, who are my people? And she said, the grievers and they need adaptive oscillation. That's the fancy term. She used adaptive oscillation. I was like, what's that? She said, well, it's like, it's like in your book, it's not all about grief because there are baseball scenes. There's grief, there's baseball, there's grief, there's baseball. And in life, I think grief can be like this bright light and it's shining in your face and you just can't look at it all the time. You sometimes have to do something else and then you can go back to the grief and then you can do something else. So I think for for us, baseball was that thing that absorbed us. But like you said, anybody can access that. And it's not to say, don't do your grief because you, the only way out is through. You're going to have to feel it. It's like getting hit by a wild pitch. Like it's going to hurt and it's going to bruise you. But if you're just constantly looking into this bright light of sadness or grief or trauma or whatever it is, it becomes very hard to walk through it. You sort of have to like dip out and dip back in. And that for us was why baseball was a grief group. A couple things. Um introverted Teresa, really i saw your happy dance dude give me a break i'm so introverted dr drew i never i'll never forget when you came into the adam carolla show maybe year four and during the commercial i shared with you like you know i have like autonomic nervous system is that the system where you're like i'm sweating my pupils are dilating i have a stomach ache my limbs are numb my palms are sweaty knees weak vomit on a sweater already mom spaghetti you know like <laughs> really bad stage fright and that was year four into a pretty successful run on a really great show where i was totally supported by adam carolla who who was the host totally supported and yet i i had these nerves every single day. And I remember you said, why? You're doing great. I don't know why. It's just my wiring. Well, it, I, I'm, I don't know if I shared with you at the time, but I also am an introvert, but but I compensate for that. So I, I still think of myself as an introvert, yet in these situations that we've all been in now a million times in front of a microphone or in front of a or something, I, I have enough experience that it doesn't bother me. But, but I get that feeling of being an introvert if, you, if you're naturally that way. America spend an average of 90% of their time indoors. They take about, of course, 20,000 breaths a day. And according to the EPA, indoor air is two to five times more polluted than outdoor air. That's right. Air Doctor has helped my house with this issue. That's the solution. Air purifier that captures the attention of established media outlets such as CNN, Money, ABC, and more. It is Air Doctor. It filters out 99.99% of dangerous contaminants and allergens, pollen, pet dander, dust mites, mold, even bacteria and viruses, so your lungs don't have to. All Air Doctor purifiers also feature whisper jet fans, 30% quieter than ordinary air purifiers. We use it next to our television in a large room and my nose stops running when we have the Air Doctor Pro running. Also, Air Doctor comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee. So if you don't love it, just send it back for a refund. Minus shipping, head to airdoctorpro.com. That's A-I-R-D-O-C-T-O-R-P-R-O, airdoctorpro.com, and use the promo code DREW. And depending on the model, you receive up to 39% off. That's up to $300 off, exclusive to our podcast listeners. You will also receive a free three-year warranty on any unit, which is an additional $84 value. 
Lock in this special offer by going to AirDoctorPro, A-A-R-D-O-C-T-O-R-P-R-O.com and use promo code DREW. Do you ever experience stage fright? Like if you're going to do something really big. Yeah, I, I, as long as I have something to say, you know, I, if, if I'm worried that I may run out of material or something, then I'm like, uh oh. But if I know what I'm doing <laughs> and why I'm there, then I'm, then I don't. So I just stick with the job, you know, and, and I have enough experience now that I can break into something, you know, <laughs> some start a new a soft shoe or something. Um, but I, but you, I never, exp- I, I do remember you talked to me about anxiety and OCD and stuff, a little bit of that. And I have a lot of that, both those two. And, but I don't remember you saying introvert that, that, that doesn't oh. fit for you. But when I have to be around people a long time, I get a, a headache right in my eyeballs, <laughs> especially if it's somebody I like or admire. Cause I'm like, it takes such a huge effort to like replicate what I believe is normal human behavior. Yep. <laughs> so I just get exhausted from the process. And then of course, when I get home from being around people, then I have to review all the things I said that were stupid, that I shouldn't have said. Why did I say that? Why did I not say that? I very rarely feel comfortable around people. And by the way, this anxiety has like, tra- it, it hasn't transferred to my kids in all of the ways I was, I was worried it would like, they're pretty confident, but my anxiety for them, like thinking of being a figure skating dad, such as, such as you were like, when I watch the Olympics, I just think like somebody falls on that triple sow cow and then they pan to the parent in the state. And I'm like, Oh God, I wouldn't be able to watch like watching my son pitch during the season I write about in the book when he was 10 in the minors, I describe what I call PMS, which is pitcher's mom syndrome. That's when you're pacing, you're sweating, you're nervous, you're hiding behind the snack bar and you're watching like this. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I get it. I get it. Uh, but you got to remember the, the skating the parenting was over 15 years ago. So we're talking about something that was a long time ago uh, and we've all, all made it through. Uh, I want to, I want to bring up something else too, which is, you know, you're, you're talking about the, you know, the firing rates of your sympathetic nervous system and all. And uh, I, I, Mr. Corolla, your old uh, partner's mm. um, autonomic nervous system has sort of become an object of conversation. I think since you left, you know, he barely has a pulse. Well, oh, you I'm pulse fascinated. High rate. He is parasympathetic dominated. So to get him even to notice something, he notices everything. At the same time, he can take everything in, but he doesn't react to anything. It's odd. It's really interesting. He has one of the most fascinating brains. And I love talking to you about this because you and I are uniquely positioned. You much more than me. But I spent four or five hours a day with him two feet away five days a week for five years. And they're just fascinating. First of all, to me, when I'm writing, I'm very comfortable. Mm -hmm. I can revise something until it means exactly what I want it to mean. I'm so comfortable writing. Speaking is not that way. Speaking extemporaneously for me, mm, sometimes I hit a double. Sometimes I get on base. Sometimes I miss the mark. I have seen Adam just you know, like he has no hesitation. He doesn't second guess himself. He's not concerned what you think of him. And he's able to express himself as if he's reading something that he's written. I've rarely met anybody who can do that. It's extraordinary. Uh, But the other thing is when he, I recently talked about this with him when he was in the middle of a huge contract negotiation and it doesn't seem like as big of a deal now, but at the time radio contracts were a lot of money. It was a big deal. There was a lot of focus on him and whether or not he was going to come back because he didn't want to work with Danny Bonaducci again. So he took a big stand. And during that, an executive flew out from CBS and Jimmy Kimmel was outside of Adam's house. And all of these big players were involved in a lot of money and a big corporation. And Adam was taking a nap. <laughs> <Sounds like> a- <laughs> 
<laughs> oh, sounds perfect. I mean, Drew, I, I can't nap if like if I'm concerned about having to return an email. Yeah, I, I'm the same way. I, I, the daylight is enough to keep me awake, not just not just anxiety. But but uh, did you? I'm trying to remember your history with him. Did you do the radio show as well as the podcast? Oh, I was. Yeah, in fact, um, he started with a different radio uh, sidekick slash news girl. She was there very briefly, and then she left to do a pilot, and I filled in for two days. Was that true? I don't remember. Rachel, do you remember Rachel Perry? I Gorgeous. Her, I don't think I remember met her though. I remember her name. Gorgeous girl. She was in Maxim magazine. And I remember tuning into the show because Howard Stern goes off the air. And then January 2nd, it's Adam Carolla and, you know, and his morning morning uh, zoo. And I remember listening to Rachel and thinking, oh, she's really talented. And also just having a thought like, how does anybody get that job? I'm so jealous. Like, how does anybody become the girl that's on the Adam Carolla show. I was a huge Robin Quivers fan. And then, you know, she took two weeks off to do a pilot, which was a big pilot. It was a big opportunity. I filled in for two days. Um, so did a bunch of other girls. And then they asked me to come back for two days and then two more days. And then I was there for five years until until the um, format flipped. That is incredible. Um, looking at her stuff, though. She was a VJ at some point. Or she was a VJ. She was so, so, so pretty. And Jimmy Kimmel wanted that. I'll never forget him saying um, that it's a theater of the mind yeah. and that you, you you have to have somebody very pretty to do that job. But then um, they were stuck with me. Stop it. Uh, they stayed with somebody pretty. Were you there when... Uh, the comedians used to stop by. He, you know, like Adam's friends used to come in and do segments, like Joel McHale and things. Was that during your era? In fact, Joel McHale was there the day that I met my husband's parents for the first time when we were just dating, and he gave me two pieces of advice I'll never forget. He said, "Don't wear too much makeup and don't talk too much." Joel, <laughs> he's such a feminist. <laughs> I know it hasn't aged that well, but I think oh. at the time I was very likely to have been wearing too much makeup. And also when I get nervous, I talk too much. So funny. So this is one of my, I've told this story probably many times on this podcast. I'm going to tell it again since you're here. And I don't know if you were a part of it and maybe you were even, this is how it was told to me. And you can tell me if, as I remember, as I'm telling it, if it's accurate or not. But apparently he had guys like Joel stopping by and dedicating their time, you know, to do segments on his show. And he was called in by, I'm not going to name the the general manager. The It was, a, I think, both general manager and the program director called him into their office, as I suppose they were often doing, <laughs> Adam, and uh, going, Adam, Adam, what these guys you have coming in, I don't know what's wrong with you. Why do you think they're funny? They're they not funny. They're not these are not interesting people. They, yes, this happened. You don't, okay. The way I heard it was as follows. They don't amount to anything. I, that first guy, Joel McHale, he's showing. Who's he? He's low energy. He's low, low energy. energy. Low energy. He's playing clips that people don't care about. What are you talking about? This other guy, he's just weird. You, you the people, listeners out there may have heard of this weird guy. His name is Zach Galifianakis. And the set, third guy, they, they go, this guy's not funny. He's radio death. I don't know why you think he's coming. Another name you may have heard of, Louis C.K. These are the three guys coming in and dedicating time. That's all true. But what they did want us to do was the wing bowl. <laughs> Isn't it classic radio? It's just such classic radio. People don't appreciate how that is an example of radio thinking and management too. Oh, I I very much remember that. We used to have all the, the time uh, David Allen Greer. Yeah, Dak would come in. Were you in the meeting with him with that that day? Uh, that was a private meeting, but I do remember it coming. You know, Adam doesn't like to ruminate on something or bring it up again and again if he's unhappy with it but 15 years later i think it's still stuck in his craw so you can imagine it came up every day mother and his grandmother second his dad that he does ruminate a bit but yes 
Yes. He, yeah. He. They said Joel McHale was radio death. I want to. I want to <laughs> hear, but I want more detail because I've I've thought about this so often. Were you? Did he come out of the meeting and tell you immediately? Did you hear about it the next day? How, what was your sort of history with this? Do you remember? I just remember at our after meetings. So Jimmy Kimmel would call in because he was then a consultant, or as Adam used to call him, an insultant. <laughs> Oh, my God. He would call with his feedback. And uh, he actually came up with uh, my favorite thing that Jimmy Kimmel came up with was this bit called who the F sells this S. Do you remember that bit? I do. (laughs) Like if you're on Craigslist and you're selling a melon baller for 75 cents, I want to know who you are. Yes. Yep. And I want Adam Carolla to ask you a lot of probing questions. And it never failed. It was a great bit. And Jimmy Kimmel came up with that. So, yeah, I I remember because Adam would just get in his car and leave as soon as possible. So he didn't, you know, relay the story immediately. But the next day and then the very and then every time Joel would come on, which was every week, he was then the host of Talk Soup. He would bring clips. And every time it would be. This. And by the way, that program uh, program director, whose name I won't say, please, nice guy, nice guy, really nice guy, and and legendary manager. Been in, been in the radio business forever and managed some major major market giant radio stations. It's just like in his mind, a Danny Bonaducci was what you wanted on the radio, like a big flashy guy with big loud stories <laughs> that were truthy. Yes. Yeah, it's truth-ish. <laughs> and that would drive Adam crazy. It would just drive him crazy. So it was weird being between those two. I remember when I first started, there was so much reverence for Dr. Drew. Like, I know I don't want to get cheesy because I know that you know this. Mm-hmm. But Adam Carolla, like, you're like deeply loves you. Mm. Like, this is a professional relationship. That's deeply important to him. Hmm. And he would tell me all the time that, uh, you know, when I when I did Love Line with Drew, I might cry. This is actually kind of like mo- moving to me. So when I when I worked with Drew during the commercial breaks, I, we would walk together to go to the bathroom during the commercial because I never wanted to stop talking to Drew. Yes, we would talk on the car on the way home. So yeah. you would do a whole show. And then talk during every break and then talk on the way home. And then jump on the phone on the way home and talk until our phones cut off. Because I live in sort of a canyon here. We talk until the phones cut off. It wasn't good enough for him to go, for me to go, hey, dude, I'm I'm getting into the canyon right now. (laughs) (laughs) The phone actually cut off. I'm going to talk at you until the forces of nature prevent me from talking at you. So when I was, had been there a couple weeks, you know, you know, Mike Lynch who's been with Adam a long time and helps helps him write the books, et cetera. Um, he said he handed me a CD one day back when they had CDs. And he said, Adam and Dr. Drew used to do this bit. It's hilarious. And we're going to need you to do it. You have to be the Dr. Drew and just listen to this in your car at home. And then, you know, tomorrow you're going to do this bit. Chief Thunder Bear. Oh, it's yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, there's cartoons of it. If you go look up uh, Chief, is it Thunder Bear? Thunder Bear? Michael Naren was the cartoonist. And and we did two of them that got a lot of play. One was a Choctaw, non-English speaking, Native American speaking uh, gynecologist. And the other was a, I forget what the premise was, but it was some sort of 007 thing where we had a, where he was a, I forget why we were, what we were talking about, but we would just launch into these stories once in a while. And, and he, as the, as the chief thunder bear, we, we, it lost its, it lost its mojo though. Do we, were you able to do it? Did you try it? Yeah. Because the, the, the difficulty is that, your role was to translate yes into english from choctaw yes from choctaw yes. <laughs> right so you're essentially writing the comedy 
Exactly. And if and what it would happen towards the end, we would do it later, he would start losing faith in my ability to <laughs> and the comedy. And so he would start doing it in English with a weird accent, try to push his comedic writing on it. And it just didn't work. It didn't work that way. But the, the ones you heard, I think, were the ones that were straight, him doing it straight. And they were the funniest. Shopify, they make it easy to grow your business exactly the way you want to, customize your online store to, well, exactly how you'd like it to be. And you don't have to just sell your own stuff anymore. With Shopify Collective, you can curate products to sell from brands you love. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S., and Shopify is a global force behind many important brands. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify, the global commerce platform that will be there with you every step of the way. And once you start selling, Shopify makes getting paid simple by instantly accepting every type of payment. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash true. It's all lowercase. Shopify is S-H-O-P-I-F-Y. Shopify.com slash true. Now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash D-R-E-W. Hey, whatever podcast you're listening to right now, guarantee it's not as good as yeah, you can Fighter stop and the listening. Kid. Yeah, stop listening to it and listen to Fighter and the Kid. We've only been doing it for 12 years. Oh, geez, before anybody else was doing them. Now everybody's copying us. It's so much fun. We cover sports, pop culture. Life, dude, in Lizzo. General. Lizzo. Life Feet. in general. Feet fetishes oh, there's a lot man. of sex talk there's oh, a lot we of know the, our stuff yeah you're not going to learn anything but hopefully you'll laugh you know what i'm saying you might learn something go subscribe to the final kid right now immediately run don't walk well i also want to say look i don't know how much is comfortable for you to say so i will keep my remarks general but I know there's been some changes for our Adam in his personal life. And I just want to say that you've done a difficult thing, which is that from where I sit, you've remained close to both people who uh, are se- uh, have separated. And you you don't seem to, if you've taken a side, I don't know about it. You seem to be on good terms with all involved. I am. However, when these things happen, you end up taking a team. You, you have to, it's just the way it works. And both people need, a, you know, who, whichever team you're on, you got to support the, the, the team because there's a lot of support that's needed. And it's, and I, Adam and I, since all that started, I've been talking every day. Wow. Every day. Okay. So like who calls who and how does this work? Uh, it back and forth. It's just whoever <laughs> gets to the phone before 9am. <laughs> That. And, and it, by the way, it is not just about that because it's morphed into the fuck's going on in the world. <laughs> like, a lot of a lot of oh my god, can you imagine? I mean, what the hell? A lot of that, and then a lot of uh, talk about his mom and grandma. <laughs> but sometimes you need, sometimes you just need that person that you can call and go, um, hey, what the fuck. Oh, yeah. Oh, no, we do a lot of that. And it's helped me process some of the stuff because I, I can't. I the whole during um, even pre COVID, I was like, when's things, when is, you know, Adam, use your crystal brain. When are things going to change? When are they going to change? When are they going to change? When's this going to get better? We're getting things are getting terrible in this country. What's what is going on? Uh, and sort of he's he would say, I don't know back then and now he started saying oh, i think it's going a certain direction i think this is, I don't know, I think this is what's happening he's <laughs> about three years ago he started saying i think it's going to be safe spaces and octagons safe spaces and octagons there's gonna be a bunch of people in their safe spaces and a bunch of people going the exact opposite direction end up in the octagon and so yeah and it's so, sort of- so we would we would diverge yeah into- I was hoping for unity and, you know, bringing things back together. He's like, I don't, well, although lately he's been a little more optimistic about that as we have all descended into our safe spaces and octagons. How did you end up, Oh, you told us how you got the job, but how did you apply for the job going from my wish? How does somebody get it to being cast on it? I still can't believe it. And um, here's a, here's a baseball story. So I know you weren't a big baseball fan uh, before and neither was I, I, until my kids started playing, 
I I did not. I thought a murderer's row was like Sister Helen Prejean was going to show up there. I I did not know anything about about baseball really. Um, but uh, shoot, what did you just ask me? How did I get? How did you get from listening to Rachel? Yes. Pitt? How's it possible? And then all of a sudden, somebody's putting you in there for for a trial run. Yes. Okay. So my dad's way of explaining this is a baseball way, okay. and he says you were. She was Wally Pip. Wally Pip is a guy that no one's heard of. Wally Pip was one of like the big power hitters in the 1920s of that era. Very famous guy. He played first base. He was in a little bit of a slump one day and he had a headache. So he took himself out of the lineup and his replacement came in and his replacement was Lou Gehrig. (laughs) So my dad's like, that girl was Wally Pip. She shouldn't have taken herself out of the lineup. So I just got got really lucky. But well, before before that, um, you're Lou Gehrig. That's what he's that's what he's telling you. Listen to my dad. I'm Lou Gehrig. To most people, Man. you know, it's like I'm like uh, I'm on the minor league team out of um, you know Anchorage or somewhere. But um, but but before that. I had been a television writer. In fact, I wrote for a show called Win Ben Signs Money. Oh, that's right. I forgot about that. Yep. So I had like a, you know, I had been a, a writer and I really wanted to be on camera, but it was, I couldn't figure out how to, how to cross that divide. Um, back when actually Jimmy Kimmel was the host of Win Ben Signs Money, but I didn't know him at all because they kept us separate. Like the writers were very separate from Ben Stein and Jimmy Kimmel for, you know, FCC reasons, because we knew the answers to the questions because we wrote not only the jokes, but also the trivia questions. So I didn't know Jimmy then, but I wrote on that show that team won an Emmy. Um, and then I went on to host a show on TLC called while you were out, which was a home makeover show that was very popular. It used to air after trading spaces. And then I did good day, New York. Um, and I'd been a writer, a journalist, um, (laughs) you know, for years before. In fact, I started as a newspaper writer when I was 19 writing obituaries. So I guess I started writing about death and I, I returned to it. When you were writing for Ben, when Ben Stein did, uh, was Bob Bowden around there? Yes. He's, he's everywhere with us. Everywhere. He, he like uh, monitors and observes. I think they bring him in on a consultant basis for every game show I've ever been on. Bob Bowden is there. He's there. I wrote for Who Wants to Be a Millionaire season one. Uh, he was there. I He was probably on the chair I wrote for that show. It was hosted by John McEnroe. So as I understand Bob Bowden, he's really a nice guy. He has been the sort of repository of not just game show history, but also I think he's the muscle that makes sure all the laws are applied or something, or that every little wrinkle is just much the way you were having to stay away from Ben that I'm sure that was him. He he's, he's like the, the, I, I don't know. He's the, what would he be? The prime minister or something of game show rules. I want to say ombudsman, but that's not it. But it's, but it's, but he doesn't feel like muscle. You know what I mean? He doesn't feel like he's there with a buzzer. Right? Eh, they're all, he's just sort of around and is just, knows everything god i hope he writes a book or a documentary there should be a documentary on him there should be oh for sure well you know there was a big game show scandal i think the show was 21 they made a movie about it with ray fines mm-hmm. where um they they wanted what was his name Charles. anyway they wanted like the better looking guy to win because it was good for ratings so there was cheating and i think since then quiz show is the name of the movie great movie and I think since then there's been a lot of caution. $60 million question or $20 million question or whatever it was then when the whole thing was just scripted. It was rigged. Yeah. So I want to go back to baseball and grieving. So, uh, and we're going to motivate people to read the book. Grief is a funny thing, right? It, it You mentioned it as being a bright light that you have to look away from periodically, which absolutely true however some people won't which is uh, always weird to me when people won't because they make themselves sick that way or some people sort of cling to the light well beyond where it's sort of 
even grieving anymore. They, they, they cling to it like it's the last vestige of their connection to the person that is gone, which I always find pathological, although early on, it's not so pathological. It can be your connection. And it comes in waves, right? It, it washes over you. It, it's a normal process. I, and, and in fact, sometimes people will tell me, like, I'm not feeling anything right now. Am I okay? Is there something wrong with me? Am I doing this abnormally? I go, just give it time. It will come. Did you have those sorts of experiences? And then tell me how Little League helped with that. Yeah. So I think there was a period where my brother was dying. He was terminal for six months and he oh, lived. Got to we'll talk about what happened to him too a little bit. Okay. So he had a very rare form of spinal cancer. He had a giant tumor on his sacrum called a maxillopapillary ependymoma. Uh, oh. he, I, we always just thought he had a bad back. He played baseball, as I mentioned, and um, he played tennis. And he was always like, I remember we loved movies, but we could never sit through a double feature because my brother was always like, you know, just uncomfortable. He was that person that was always taking, you know, Motrin, Advil. And after years and years of this, he went to the chiropractor and the guy said, like, I can't help you. You should you should get an MRI. So he did. And when he. Uh, when the chiropractor got the image, he he handed it back to my brother. And my brother said he was like white. He was white as a ghost because he's just a chiropractor. Like he's probably never seen a 10 centimeter tumor on a sacrum. Illness. Yes, illness, real illness. And so uh, my brother ended up going to Johns Hopkins. They, um, you know, have like incredible surgeons there. They were able to remove it. And for five or six years, he was pretty good. He had two kids during that time. So he had um, a five and a seven-year-old when he died. And then when but it came back. Could be metastatic. Did he, did he, was he aware at the beginning, this is a potentially spreading tumor or did they think, all right, that's that. They, we thought that was that, but you know, I've obsessively Googled it and Googled it since. And uh, there, there was a, I, his, his wife has later told me that, um, when they went out on their first date, he told her, he said, I've got a lot of scars on my back and I've had this cancer. And she, uh, my sister-in-law is like literally like a Rhodes scholar and an economist and one of the smartest people I know. And before she went on that second date, she knew every, all of the probabilities and uh, better than I did as his sister, because I think maybe I couldn't I couldn't look at that. To me, my big brother was strong and he was hardy and he was going to be the exception and it was never coming back. I really believe that. I really, truly did. But she was, um, you know, looking at it more from an, the perspective of an economist. And she said, 50 percent chance it's going to come back. Mm. And, um, you know, and, and obviously it did. And then it's it's an interesting kind of tumor because it didn't metastasize the way you'd think, like brain, lungs, bone. Um, it just moved into his hip, but there was just nothing they could do. The tumor itself was just spreading and they couldn't stop it. They had already tried radiation. Um, they have a tumor board at Johns Hopkins, like they meet and they discuss your your tumor. All, all difficult cases, every, every hospital. Right. Yeah. And they just, at, at some point, they just said... Um, like you, you're gonna you're gonna live six months, and six months would have been exactly his son's birthday. And I remember just praying, like, "Ah, oh, don't die on your kid's birthday. This is already gonna be a fucked up childhood." Um, and he didn't. He lived ten ten days after that. But one of the things he said that he wanted to do before he died was see one of his son's soccer games. Hmm. And you know, he my sister in law's from Argentina, so you know they're into soccer, but um. Yeah, it's it's like um sort of the the theme of the book like that one of the things that he missed out on doing was having that father-son sideline relationship and that was one of the last one of the last things he wanted wanted to do which he never got to do. Mm. But you and your dad substituted. Did you did yeah. his kids games too? Well, that situation got really complicated because my sister-in-law um, who's an economist, she got a job in Egypt. So she took the kids pretty far away. Pretty, and far. Then... <laughs> <laughs> pretty far away. Wait, isn't that even an expression like bumfuck Egypt? That is it. It's, it yeah. 
And there's a, there's a place in Illinois called Cairo. Maybe possible it could have been there, but no, it's Egypt. And then there was a pandemic, so we couldn't go to Egypt. And so we we missed some time. But but I have seen him since. And it's funny, his son's a, a great athlete. He loves basketball. He loves soccer. Um, he's never really played baseball because, you know, Argentinian mom, they're they're not they're not as into it. They they're more into soccer. But um, yeah, I think my um, so my son, who's the subject of the book, was born on September 24th, which was also my brother's birthday. Just a, one of those things. And they're both lefties. So they both play for space, both pitched, um, both love fastballs. And at, at times my dad would even say, um, oh, look at Muggsy out there. My brother's name was Morgan, but we called him Muggsy. And my dad would slip up and refer to my son. And I thought, like, is this bad or should I correct it? But in my gut, I knew that it was it was OK. Like this was I think when you um, when you lose somebody to to cancer or to some degenerative awful disease the way that you see that person and how you remember them in the last few months can be really hard like my brother was on steroids and his face was really swollen um he also was in a wheelchair in the end and his they had done so many surgeries to try to remove his tumor and i'm sorry that this is graphic um they could never close the wound in his spine so he had uh, a wound vac and it was always on his lap to try and dry it out, I think. And there was, there was like a sound that it made and it was always with him. So he was my brother, who I remembered like being big and strong and tough, was in a wheelchair. He was swollen. He was in pain. He was scared. He didn't look like himself. He had a beard. And I think when we watched baseball, it was like it brought the version of my brother that we wanted to remember back to life because you could remember the kid with the baseball hat. And this scrawny hair coming out who never missed a ground ball at first and who loved a fastball. Mm. It's quite a, it's quite a story, right? It's, it's uh, and let's, let's expand out from looking away from the light to being in the structure and the present moment on the diamond. There's more than just that though. Keep going. And plus it was you and your dad, which is sort of very deeply touching. My dad, my dad's my best friend. I mean, he's like you and Adam. I call my dad every day. And this season enabled that. Like sometimes I think sports were invented so you can connect with your emotionally unavailable relatives. Hmm. <laughs> nah. I could call my dad, which I did. And we would text back and forth about the lineup who should be up the middle? Who should be playing the hot corner? Who should be in center field? Why is this person bad in cleanup? Why is this person bad? In, like we were exchanging real thoughts and feelings and ideas and real emotion. Ostensibly, it was just about baseball. But I was also getting reps at being with my dad. Mm -hmm. I was getting reps. Two games a week, week after week. We're sitting together behind the first baseline. I think I'd had a very difficult time with my dad because... Um, he got full custody of my brother and I, but then he returned just me to my mom. So I had been separated from my brother when I was three and he was five. And I resented my dad a lot. Also, I was embarrassed about my dad. And this is a hard thing to talk about. But, you know, my dad was a mechanic. He wore a monkey suit. He had his name stitched over his heart. He always had grease under his nails. The other people's dads drove BMWs. My dad fixed them. And then even later, you know, I remember he'd show up at the beginning of the season. He doesn't have a car. He rides a bike. And this is Phoenix. OK, so he'd show up on his bicycle to the ballpark. Seventy five years old in Lycra shorts. <laughs> oh, my. That's... And half his teeth and, you know, shirts from Walmart like a big hat with like sunscreen and grease and then like hairy ears, hairy ears <laughs> and a very hairy nose, but not what you're thinking. Like picture a stuffed animal that you win at a carnival, <laughs> but with a bald head because he shaved his head because he didn't want to pay for haircuts. So he shaved it with razors from the 99 cents only store. So it'd be like scabs, a bald scabby head, hairy ears, old man balls that you could very clearly see through the Lycra. Nice. And this was like, and we live in a neighborhood of Range Rovers 
and fancy grandparents. But by the end of the season, my dad was the only grandfather that had been to every game, that knew every player, that was rooting as hard as I was. By the end, he was my dad and I was his daughter and we were a team and I didn't want it any other way. Nice. Our friend Jordan Harbinger at the Jordan Harbinger Show. It's a podcast you really should be listening to. Every day someone tells you you just have to listen to some podcast, and you're going, sure, of course. But no, you don't want to let this one get by. Jordan's show, which Apple named one of the best of 2018, is aimed at making you get better informed. Jordan's a super bright guy, a super interesting guy. His life course has been wild. He's been like held captive a couple of times and he talks to fascinating guests like a hostage negotiator from the fbi or a cinematographer who discovered a lost city in the jungle you pick it it's always interesting he's very careful at the guests and what he pulls out of them useful practical insights brilliant guest it's worth checking it out i enjoy the jordan harbinger show i think you will too search for the jordan harbinger show that's h-a-r-b as in boy i-n as in nancy g-e-r on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts, I think you will not be disappointed. It is The Jordan Harbinger Show. And would you talk about your brother when you were there, or would you just always stay with the baseball? Always the baseball. Very rare. Very rare. He did not want to talk about my brother, and I had to respect his grieving process. I mean, I get annoyed when people even use the phrase grieving process, but like his was different than mine and he lost a child. I lost a brother. It's, it's different. It's just different. Yeah. It's super, it's super. I mean, think about it. You're now you're a parent. I mean, you know, think about it. Just, it's just breathtaking. It's, 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 it's hard to even do the thought experiment. It's too painful. Yeah, exactly. Is your dad well now? He's going to be 80 in December. He's amazing. Like, look what he's been through. He quit his job to be with my brother when my brother was sick, and he stayed with him every night for months on end. My brother was in all these, like, horrific rehab places they send you when you're kind like, they know you're dying, but they don't want you're not in hospice. Like, they're kind of these holding tanks for people that can't are too sick to be at home. My dad was with him for months on end. Every night, just, you know, sleeping on the floor, sleeping on a chair, never complained, very sunny personality. And I, my dad, you know, he, there's, there's a running joke in the book where every game my dad would say, who has it better than we do? And we'd both say together, nobody. That was our call and response. Like who loses their child in such an awful way and has a front row seat to it and yet can find it joyful to go to a little league game. Like he was my hero because of the way he could do grief. He didn't, you know, talk about it all the time, but he didn't push it away. I I write in the book, my dad lives in a trailer park, right? And, you know, it has like the stairs that you can roll up to the door, the AstroTurf rug, you you could picture it. And next door, you get a little shed with your, that comes with your trailer. And, um, that's where he put all my brother's old trophies and the the pictures of my brother and the photo albums. Everything of my brother's was in the trailer. And one of the few times he talked about my brother, he said, T, I can't, I can't look at the pictures. I can't look at the pictures. I can't look at the pictures of Muggsy. I, I, I can't put them up. I can't put them up. Like he was embarrassed and like he wanted me to tell him that it was okay. And I said, it's okay, dad. The pictures are in the shed. And to me, that just became a metaphor. Also, the shed had a broken door, so it was sort of always open. And my dad's a fixer. He can fix anything, but he never he doesn't fix the door. And to me, that's how he does his grief. He he has all of those memories nearby, but they can't he can't hang them in his trail. That's too much for him. And he Mm -hmm. knows that. I feel like that's a perfect place to stop and a wonderful endorsement of the book. I don't want to say too much more because I want people to go buy the book, making it home. Here it is. Here's the book. It's Teresa as nicely. She autographed it for me. Look at that. And uh, I recommend it most highly. Uh, 
it's it's really a lovely book. Both Adam and I are on the back, and uh, we have Cal Ripken on the front, where he belongs. <laughs> was, listen, Teresa, it was so great to reconnect. Are you, are you ever out here in Southern California? I'm going to be there Wednesday doing Adam's podcast. Oh, I thought you already did it or something, because I saw a picture of you guys. He must have been promoting it already. I did it. But I hit him on a bad day and the book didn't exactly come up. <laughs> oh, no. What did you guys talk about? <laughs> oh, man, it was such a night, Drew. I, so, you know, I'm a small book. I'm not on like a huge book tour. So this was my big swing. I was going to do Adam's show. I bought a plane ticket, booked the hotel room, got an outfit, hair and makeup done. In fact, I think I saw you in passing because you guys were recording yeah. before, right? And you were like, got to go. And then either he didn't know why I was there <laughs> or it was a busy day. I, I was like, Adam's not that moody, despite what people might think. But it was just that day where he was preoccupied. And I think he was confused. He had no idea why I was there about there was another there was a random comedian at the top of the show and I, who I didn't know. So I was like, uh oh, how am mm -hmm. I going to talk about my book? There's like a rando here. And then like 20, 30, 40 minutes into the show, I had this revelation like, oh, he doesn't know that I'm here to promote the book. <laughs> and and what did he talk about? Um, He just thought you were visiting and when homelessness. Uh, the pandemic, Gavin Newsom, <laughs> uh, go have asthma over there. Oh. Greatest hits. So <laughs> what should I, I asked myself during the course in real time, I was like, oh, he's not going to bring up the book. He doesn't know why I'm here. He probably just thinks I stopped by because I was in town. This is my big swing. Like this is, this is my big chance to, to promote the book. And I love the book and I really like, want it to, I want people to, to find it. And I thought like, what are my options? I can just interrupt. I can break the fourth wall and go, Adam, do you know anything about my book, which you yourself have blurbed? Here's your name on the back. You loved it. It says right here, this book may be about little league, but Teresa is a major league talent. Remember that? Remember when you... So then I thought, no, that's going to be awkward. And I don't want to be like the baseball card in spokes. Oh, my God. It would have been so good, though. It would have been so uh, good. Should you I gotta, have done that? You have to recreate this magic when you go in on Wednesday and, and remind you know, talk to him about what it would have been like to actually break through. It, that's really funny. Get this the time, though, I knew he wasn't going to read the book because he's not a reader. And look, does, is reading easy for him? I don't think so. Hmm. Oh my God! You know when he when Loveline started, he he they couldn't put cards up because he couldn't read them, and he worked really hard at getting his reading up to speed, and he did a great job. I but, agree. I think that that's part of what makes his mind so beautiful is that he's had to work around not being able to perhaps read text as you or I would, whether it's on a card. Like I remember him doing live reads for Purina One, and like he would have to look at it, yeah. sort of like memorize it and then say it. Exactly. So I knew I knew he wasn't going to read like, you know, a 300 page book. But this time I outsmarted him because I sent Chris, his producer, a nine minute audio chunk. Perfect. Do you think he's going to listen to it? If if Chris reminds him before Wednesday, he will. But you got you got to get it on his radar. I'll try to bring it up, too. I'll see if I can bring it. <laughs> We haven't had our conversation yet today. I missed his call this morning. So let me see if I can bring it up. So, but listen, it was so great to talk to you. And I'm so, I don't know what the word moved, I guess. I was going to say proud, but that's not really the right, the right word. Uh, this book, Making It Home, Get It Now, Making It Home, Amazon, wherever you get books. Is it hardback too or just paperback? Paperback and audio. Yeah. Make, it'll make a great gift. And if anybody's struggling with stuff, it is a touching story. And uh, gives you a nice model for how to how to manage, you know, brains heal other brains, what I always say, but it's not just you and your dad brain healing each other. It's sharing together in a very special way. And I think it's just just a phenomenal book. So making it home, Teresa Strasser, 
Anywhere else you want people to go to your website or anything else you're doing? Just the website has all the information. Thank you so much. Thanks for supporting the book. Um, when you wrote that beautiful blurb and even tried to get me Mike Piazza. And thanks for having me now. Teresa, uh, goodbye. I'll see you Wednesday. And everyone else, I'll see you next time. All conversation and information exchanged during the participation in the Dr. Drew podcast is intended for educational and entertainment purposes only. Do not confuse this with treatment or medical advice or direction. Nothing on these podcasts supplement or supersede the relationship and direction of your medical caretakers. Although Dr. Drew is a licensed physician with specialty board certifications by the American Board of Internal Medicine and the American Board of Addiction Medicine, he is not functioning as a physician in this environment. The same applies to any professionals who may appear on the podcast or drdrew.com. 